Well, it's only been 13 years, but uh, this is the return of Parking in Bitterman Circle. My name is Aaron, and uh, today we're going to be interviewing uh, one of my dear friends and another fellow road dog, Jim Corona from New York City, and uh, it's a pretty good uh, discussion, a lot of interesting questions, a lot of interesting answers. I hope you like it. So, uh, you know, another another round in uh, the, the history of the parking in Bitterman Circle uh, legend point. We're going to start off, and uh, we got ourselves a guest today. Uh, my friend Jim Corona is on, and I'm going to ask him some questions and uh, see what we find out. So, hey, who are you and where are you from? I am Jim Corona. I am from New York, New York. New Thanks York. for having me. I'm glad to have you. Uh, so uh, that's that's plenty right there. But uh, what do you do now? I mean, what kind of uh, what what do you do? I suppose as a job is what I'm asking you. Okay. So um, uh, I I have like a dual life going on where I still do road work. Um, the most recent touring thing I've done is. Am I saying who I'm working with? If you want, it's okay. entirely up to you. Yeah, I, I um, just recently was working backline percussion and with the horn section for Trey Anastasio's band. Um, uh, before that, I just did a fill-in for a couple days with Sarah Bareilles while she was in rehearsals. And before that, I was covering for you on, <laughs> and Matt on Bonnie Raitt. So, yeah. And also threaded in there is a, a longtime relationship on and off with Paul Simon. And when we tour, I'm mostly like a backline crew chief and drums and percussion. But when we're not touring, as in yesterday and the day before, I'm running to his dwelling and doing guitar string changes. So I have been his guitar tech in the past and um, and sort of like production ombudsman, as once described. So, uh, you know, he does uh, small events. And at times then I could be mixing that and being a road manager for him, a guitar player and somebody else. So. Uh, I've done a number of capacities for Paul. Um, and then the other job when I'm home in New York is I've been slowly working towards and much more in an audio and A1 and A2 capacity as a New York City stagehand. So I've been kind of blessed to be able to work at the 92nd Street Y and at Sound Associates and a little bit at Lincoln Center in the capacity of just a stagehand with audio background. And that's been growing. I've done a fair amount of mixing, but that's been growing more and more. Very good. Uh, did you study the arts when you were a kid? Did they, did they have a, a, a decent arts thing? I mean, I'm not, I'm not necessarily even, um, you know, like music and art and what, before all of the, the, the budget cutting that occurred uh, in, this, in public schools, did you get a chance to uh, get turned on to some stuff when you were in the formative years? Oh, yeah. I, I'm not doing this if not for that. So um, I think my first I was a drummer. My first pair of sticks and a crappy drum pad was third grade. So was that eight years old, nine years old? Um, 
I was just in a primary school band and then middle school. And then I started taking drum lessons in middle school and was pretty adept and learned big band and started playing a middle school big band. And then high school was high school big band and high school marching band. And then went right out of high school into the army band for three years. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was embedded. And then out of the army during my time in the army, um, I did a lot of they, the army band that I was in was a modest army band, not like one of the big DC bands. And they got a pair of uh, AKG 414s and a quarter inch tape machine. And all my downtime, I was learning how to mic a drum kit and play with a friend on a piano, how, how we recorded over and over hours and hours of just, you know, playing with it, moving mics, recording. So that was the formative part for me. Uh, the next thing, uh, I mean, I, I have a hard time actually getting the answer for this to myself because I started off so young. But uh, what was the first concert you attended? Oh, uh, first concert I attended was Count Basie Orchestra. Mm. And it was in like a performing arts center. It was followed closely by a Buddy Rich as a drummer. That was a big deal. And, and he had a younger band. Um, I think the drummer was, Buddy was a better drummer, but the band experience of the bassy thing was a better experience for me. And I could hear the parts and I could hear the band doing dynamics. So that impacted me because this was also what I was learning at that age. But I'm trying to think of the first rock concert. Um, I want to say it was Peter Gabriel at the Stony Brook University gym. And this would have been 78, 79. And I was a, a Genesis fan. But, man, I really liked Peter Gabriel right after the Lamb Lies Down, his early stuff. So getting to go see him early and seeing a superstar leave a successful band to go out on his own, um, that was a big deal to me also. Because I think there was an aspect of that. Like you could be in a band and then step out and have your own voice and so that was it. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, when was your I got to do that moment? I mean, when when I mean, this usually is sometimes it happens with that first concert. Sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, the, for me, I, I, I know that I had a, an experience that uh, was very clear to me that I this is what the direction I was going in. I mean, because I had a musical background just like you Um with different bands during the that, that period and then all of a sudden uh being more of a support person on a on a tour was what kind of made sense to me uh so i mean it could be playing it could be teching i don't know i mean but when did when did you just say that yes this is it this is what i want to do ah i i think that um Definitely in high school, as I became aware that I was proficient and um, and pleased others, I think that was an aspect of my playing that brought joy to others and that supported being a member of like when you play big band, it's really my drum teacher talked a lot about role. You have to know your role. You know, you're not the Buddy Rich. You're not Buddy Rich. You're not in front of the band as with the drums. You're more, you know, understanding the role and having awareness of the role and participating as one of the group and knowing 
I'm leading the phrase and then I get out of the way and I lead the phrase and I get out of the way and the bass player keeps the time. I support the time and I change the phrase. So I was I, I was lucky enough to have the scope to understand the role as a musician. And then the rock band, that understanding informed my rock band stuff. So I want to answer your question of when I was probably 14 or 15 and I was in a band with uh, an acoustic guitar player who had a pickup and plugged into pedals and used it like an electric, um, heavily John in, uh, Lennon influenced guy and a bass player who was uh, uh, John Entwistle inspired. And so, um, and they both loved my almost animal from the Muppets approach to drumming because I was such a, a, I was a Who fan in the spirit of the Who, but at the same time, I was listening to Earth, Wind, and Fire and Sinatra recordings and Sly and the Family Stone and then Zeppelin. And so I was blending all kinds of stuff. And I, it informed my drumming that it made me a good drummer. We went in the studio to play a, a song that they, this guy Mike had written. And it was the first time I was um, asked to put a click on and play to a click. And I was able to do it. And they were all like, holy shit, this kid can play to a click. And um, to me, that was also like I had acknowledgement from pros that I knew what the hell I was doing. And so that moment also gave me great confidence that still carries today. Like I haven't played a lot recently, but I can sit down and play a good rock beat to a click accurately. And and so that that informs a lot of my confidence in life. It's funny that that does, but it does. And so, um, and that led to playing and, and the playing led me, I worked at SIR as a, as a rehearsal guy, I just wanted to be around it, but I really wanted to be able to be in my band and have SIR as a job. And then I, I you know, I, I fell into, you know, gigs just as a result of being an SIR employee. And, and, and I can tell you more about that. I don't want to, I think that answers that question. I'm glad to tell you anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's uh it's crazy i mean i i ended up i was doing some i think i might have been about 16 when i got called to go do a studio gig in in uh, western massachusetts with a bunch of strangers we ended up doing uh some 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 uh some cover tunes and everything i, pl- I think i played brown-eyed girl but i think van morrison would have come and punched me in the head if he'd heard the way i was playing <laughs> <laughs> um, I've seen him punch people. <laughs> yeah, it happens. Um, what was your first gig, man? What was your first playing? You know, I mean, playing or teching, I don't care. I just what when you were when were you in front of an audience and and got that experience? Oh well, so first first must have been you know. Hogan's Heroes as a sixth grader and that, you know, the little primary school band, middle school, the jazz band, high school. My high school was a um, they the band director was a first trumpet Chicago symphony. So he had his act together and he really liked the marching band stuff. And we had a competitive marching band that won awards and stuff and worked hard at the halftime show. And I had a big part of that. So. Um, was, there was, that DC, of, was that DCI or was that no, uh, no, separate? No, this was high school marching band. What was right. cool was that they brought in clinicians from the drum and bugle corps 
So I had clinicians that were proficient drum corps guys, you know, and, and I was still playing traditional and they said, look, this visually works better and you can do it much more synchronized and sonically balanced if you play match. And there were rock drummers who were playing match grips. And I was like, okay, you know, and so, um, I was happy to be adaptive to that, you know? And so that, that, those moments, uh, playing gigs like, uh, rock band gigs in high school, those, those, you know, even just for friends at parties was, was a big delight. I, um, one of the groups I ended up in as a 20 something, we opened for Cinderella. I can remember having my hair, lots, lots of hairspray. It was like this, this band was sort of like a, an edgy, slightly edgier, edgier, in excess band from New York. That, that's pretty much what it was like. And the, the hair to match. So. Oh, Lord. <laughs> my folks Where? to that gig. Yeah, so there you go. My nice blue collar folks came to that gig. I can remember my mom saying, you know, you're going to owe me for this. <laughs> it was a very playful moment, but I I did feel like, yeah, that was pretty loud. Sorry, mom. <laughs> it gets worse. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have a mentor? Did you have someone who steered you with your playing and uh, and was was there to uh inspire you to, to, to keep working at it? Yeah, I had a good drum teacher who was a mentor in just his, the, the spirit in which that he approached the job, right? Um, he would stand over me. A lot of my early stuff was uh, music stand, drum pad, and, you know, rudiment and part to read, and um, he would stand like, right? <laughs> and you know, if I played it well, he was so physical. He was a, a smaller guy. He was probably like five, three, but he was a runner. So he was super fit and he was my parents' age and I'd get something right. And he'd be like, that was great. Pow. He would hit me right on the shoulder. You know, he was so happy to see my success. And so, and he would challenge me. He would be like, he was like, the thing I threw at you last week, you killed it. And today this isn't as hard as that. And you're having trouble. Did you practice? Like, it seems like you didn't practice. He would, he had the capacity to challenge me in a way without discouraging me and also have me accountable and culpable. And I stayed with him went to, into high school. And, and this was a cost. My folks, it wasn't easy for them, but they found a way. And so he was definitely one. And, and the musicians I played with acknowledged the quality of my playing. And, and I think that that was just, you know, a good part of the teamwork, but I, I knew I could carry my, my own weight as a band member. Well, and that's, and that was the next, it goes right into the next question is what did they give you that you still carry with you? Oh, uh, well, you know me, I, I'm a highly exuberant person and enthusiastic for connection with musicians and people in the music business. Uh, I, I, perfect strangers. I, I, I have an enthusiasm for just meeting and connecting with people. And so I have long hair. So people have that presumption that I'm in music, you know what I mean? And so um, it's a start point for a dialogue about connection. But the um, I'd like to support up and coming musicians. If I see a little four-year-old playing with a kazoo, I'm going to say, go get them. You know what I mean? There's There's an aspect of um, the joy 
and pleasure and privilege that it's given me. I'm, I know I'm lucky and blessed to, to have this ability and then to turn it into a career, you know, as a roadie, as a techie, as a sound guy, and that the quality of my musicianship informs how well I do those other jobs and my connection to the musicians I work with. I, you and I both work with very high-level musicians. There's a dialect to the dialogue about when we're talking about music. And being a decent musician, as a monitor guy, I sit down, and if I don't like the way those monitors sound, I go, I mean, you got to sing. you got to play. I want to make this as if I had to sing and I had to play. So there's an empathy and support that comes with it from being a good musician. So I, I like to carry that forward. Like, I was encouraged. I want to encourage. I was supported. I want to support. So... I, I'm swear you're looking at my list. I know you can't see it from where you're sitting right here, but uh, but uh, they're the good next, questions. The next the next question was, uh, what thoughts do you have about musical texts versus technical texts? And I, where I mean that, I mean I think the the next series of questions that we're going to get into is definitely the. I mean, because it's there have been some very remarkable texts out there that can't play a note. Yes. And, and they're really good at what they do and they really know what they're doing. And it, it always surprised it always surprises me when I find when I find that out. And uh, but I, I also think for um, as far as the difference between musical and technical, the idea that with a music musician's background, that you can actually have a little bit of an advantage when it comes to the music with the, the arrangement, the, the, the intent that, that these people have. And, um, you know, I, I just wonder about that a lot because I've, I've, I think sometimes it depends on who you're working for. Um, that it's almost perfect where, um, I mean, if you, if you've got to be able to play exactly like the person you're working for, um, I mean, I know people who've been in that position and that's just, it's, uh, it's a skill. It is a definite skill, but, um, yeah. So what do you think about musicians as techs? I Those mean, are two killer questions. And, and I think I'm humbled more than often by somebody who's not a musician, who's really good at being a roadie or a sound guy. It always smokes me in that, man, how did they get this? Because I've learned some of it intuitively being a musician. So they have my respect and, and, um, uh, and admiration, like, holy cow. And so, um, and then it's a delight to, to, to figure out how, like for me, the curiosity of how the hell did you get here? You know, like I, I, I meet sound guys who could be working in IT at a very high level. There's some super smart guys who do what we do. And so my intuition and my musicality have carried where my maybe my intellect hasn't. And then it's a little disproportion in that person. But what I definitely do know is when it's a team of balance like that, like if it has a both capacity, the team definitely exceeds its um, its singularity of each individual. So I'm I'm a believer in that, um, and I've seen and I and I think it also comes from a nugget of desire. So 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 say one of these techie guys just happened to be friends of the band, and then the band were like, you know, we know you don't play a lick, but man, you're really good at this. Come be with us. That connective spirit of you're part of the band. 
come be one of the the be with us in team that spirit is something well i really believe in but that i think is just that little bit of fuel to launch somebody that you know you and i have worked next to who just we marvel at we're like man it's so good that you're here you know who the hell else is going to take apart this synth look at the circuit board and say that capacitor and we're like what you know and so i i love that like to me to be around somebody who knows something i don't know lifts me up it doesn't push me down and so that's part that's question one um question two can you reread it what about musicians as techs i mean that's that's the second question so you mean like us <laughs> like you and me we come from- yeah yeah but i mean i mean there are people um Let's no, see. I mean, I, I, you know, really, I mean, I know, uh, I mean, I've got some, uh, I can think of one person right off the bat who's ended up playing in about four or five of the bands that he's worked for in the past 15 years. You know, I mean, just through just through whatever happened, people getting sick or injured, uh, a piece missing, you know, uh, in the, the arrangement where they just kind of need someone else to kind of right. fill, it, fill everything out. I know Clavon has done this and the guy who who's uh, Mick Fleetwood's guy does this, mm-hmm. right? Where he's like, Mick's like, I can't even sit at the kit. And the guy does the whole fucking show, right? Guys who can, who are, are well, for lesser term, like a backline tech who then is playing along with the band on and or off stage. Right. Um, I kind of love that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it creates a little bit of awkwardness when, the guy that's playing is now on the crew bus instead of the band bus. And part of me in, in the thing is, is like, if he's in the band, give him a job in the band, put him on the band bus and hire another roadie. There's a part of me that's like, spread it out. And then it's just like, well, you know, that's not what's happening. So accept it. Right. So then, okay. So I think it's great. Uh, um, I did it in a, in a very small way with Bonnie Raitt last year, you know, just playing a little bit of percussion behind the, the drum kit. And um, I was delighted that I could contribute. You know, I was grateful to have the gig and I was and I'm grateful to have the capacity to do it. So I felt included as a person as doing it. I felt included um, when I've been around it. I just felt like it's a it's a team trying to win a game. The game is do a good concert so everybody out there felt like they got their money's worth and they'll buy a ticket to another show or tell somebody they went to a show. So if, right. if you're helping move the ball of entertainment business along and keep the entertainment business going without harm to others, I think I support it. I, I, I don't know. I definitely support it. I may not understand it and I may be one person who's you know not happy about it. But like I said, try and create another job. And if that's not going to happen, Let's just make sure people feel like they got their money's worth. So, and I've I've been asked to do it, and I've done it gladly. I'm going to dig in with just just a little bit uh, more deeply into this the the two questions we just worked over. But uh, what do you bring to your clients? Do you bring transparency or influence? You know, how can you tell what's best? And I kind of put it along the lines of the difference between a Sherpa or a caddy as opposed to a pack mule. I mean, are you actually, you know, picking the line going up through the mountains, you know, look out for that fissure or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I mean, in some cases, I mean, we know people that 
whisper in the ear of the person up there and go, eh, you know, I might try this, you know, and, and it works. It works with the relationship that, that, that they have. But sometimes you try to do that and you find yourself on a greyhound going home. Yes. I would have to use the caddy analogy because I'm a bad golfer. And I use it often to explain our industry because I still have family members who don't understand what crew people are, even though I've been doing this 30 something years. So, so if I'm a caddy and I work for a golfer, you know, and he's a pro golfer who can, you know, play six shots under par and it's, you know, it's a hundred yards and a hundred yards requires a wedge. And he goes, give me the eight. And I'm like, that's too much club. Are you sure? And he goes, and if he says, you know, like for me, it's like, he says, yeah, I'm going to hit it soft, but I need this club to do this. And I, and I've thought this out as here's the eight, you're the ace. I'm the guy carrying the clubs. Mm-hmm. And so there is a risk in saying, are you sure? Because, you know, we're in a moment and it could cause doubt. So it, it's a measured answer. If somebody says, give me the eight, here's the eight. And if they screw up the shot, then I know next time when they ask for the eight, I'll ask it. I may not ask it the first time. So I have to trust the person I'm working for is going to ask for what they need and I'll provide it. And then am I to inject myself? Um, do I risk? Because there's a risk. There's a risk in a subordinate, you know, offering to 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 tell their boss, as it were, do you know what decision you're making, or prompt them? You know what I mean? And so, I, I think I put a, a fair amount of care into the the question before I ask the question. You know, these strings are three shows old. We haven't done a show with three old three show old strings. Do you want me to change them, or do you want to go with it? I like to let them know. I'm thinking about this question, but they have the decision. And so I, I, it's, it could be a, a, a jump of I don't want the decision or I just want you to know I'm thinking of this because I'm conscious of it. And then let's us make a decision. Right. I'm keeping score on this inventory. What do you want to do? I, I think I prefer that one because if they ask me my opinion, I have an opinion ready. But they didn't say always give me your opinion. And always make a decision for me because I think that that's presumptive and that if I'm hired, this is probably a pretty big artist and they know what they're doing and I'm not their first gig and I'm not their first roadie. So uh, I have respect that the people that have hired me know what they're doing. And if they hey, anything you can think of to help me do this better, well, then I might offer it. There was one guy I worked for who his musical history only went back as far as uh, Tommy Lee and uh, Randy Castillo, as far as drummers were concerned, you know, it was like fine drummers, you know, right. You know, without a doubt, but uh, you know, you try to play them some John Bonham, you try to play them some, some uh, Ian Pace or, or Stuart Copeland or, or, or whatever, just, you know, and then, and then really taking it, you can start going back further and further and see where, you know, these guys came from. Who, who were they being influenced by? But uh, I'm asking myself the question, have I done this? Have I done this with the idea of, of transforming or changing the person? Like I'm doing this to, you know, to add to your library. Or if I'm just saying, hey, have you ever heard this? This is kind of fun. Because it, it, let's say that that I played something for somebody that they'd never heard. and It blew their mind and they wanted to try it on the gig. <laughs> Yeah. So try it on the gig. They made a choice. I didn't right. make a choice for them. Um, if I say, 
you know, if I said to them three times a day, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, and they do it. Yeah, that could definitely get me on the Greyhound home. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because just because the trust is betrayed and, and perception, right. maybe in reality. But um, uh, the folks that I've been working with, I, I tend to do more listening to what they're listening to and say, well, maybe they're listening to something I haven't paid attention to. So I think I try to tune to their frequency a little more than I say, hey, have you ever heard this? Hey, have you ever heard this? For me, the information source stuff is more about, well, you use these strings. What about these strings? Hey, you use these heads. What about these heads? Hey, you use this mic. What about this mic? More, It's more technical because that's the dance of our relationship. And, and so, um, but I've had some great conversations with musicians uh, about you know, have you heard this? No. Have you heard this? No. And then like we're trading CDs or we're trading MP3s and I'm like, wow, I can't believe I never heard this. And they're having a wow. I never. And then now it's a dialogue and the dialogue of depth builds a trust. I think that that is a key important thing of, you know, we're partners on this planet in the business of music and let's build our dialect so we can communicate more deeply. It's, well, I mean, that's the same thing. I mean, uh, as co-workers, we end up having this kind of uh, back and forth, you know, and uh, I mean, we we experienced uh, about an 18 month working period together once, which was was rather intense, a lot of rehearsal and a lot of touring and um, and, and a lot of influences. But, uh, you know, I mean, but the thing is, is that you start realizing that the people that you that you work with. Um, all of a sudden, they, I mean, they, they hit the, the reference points, you know, it's, you know, coming from the same generation. Or, I mean, when I started out, I mean, there was, you know, I was in my 20s and people were in their 40s and 50s. And, and uh, so there was a, a different set of um, influences, you know, coming from coming from the musician and coming from the tech. Slight shift here. But, of course, you had already figured that out. I don't know how. Um, these are, you know, technology versus the ear is kind of how I underlined this. It says advances have been so fast. Is the dependence on new gear make, making things better or is it making a new generation that's not learning to listen or feel the room? And I'm, and I think basically what I'm kind of harping on would be the, the sort of digital console, uh, situation where people people so there are people out there right now who are are doing really well and doing a great job using these digital consoles but you know you go back to you know the analog stuff and and having to deal with your eqs and compressors and it's not they're not plugins they're separate entities um do you think you think i mean I've, I've already seen it in a situation where someone's digital console went down and then they, all they had was a PM 4000 for them to use. And they were lost yeah. because they hadn't really spent any time on, on that particular uh, piece of gear. But uh, do you, I mean, do you think that the, the, the kids, so to speak, are, uh, are uh, kind of shorting themselves by not having an experience with uh well, let me reference it so that, you know, whoever's listening to this knows I'm in my late 50s. So there there are fellas older than me doing this and more fellas younger than me doing this. So um, do I think do I think that younger folks who have come up in the primarily digital age have less skill because they couldn't adapt to analog gear? Or do I just feel that the the 
magnitude of um, how capable new gear is, does that create uh, uh, lesser skills? I I think I'd lean more towards no than yes, but I think it's a maybe. And it depends on the individual and it depends on the job. Uh, So I think that the job still commands what the job needs and that uh, if it, let's say it's a young band and it's a young engineer. In this case, we're using engineer. And if the board fails, the, the board fails. So when we were young folks, there wouldn't be two consoles. And if the analog console failed, we're up the creek or I'm up the creek. And so what do I do then? And so that that answer of what do I do then is I go to the artist and I say, hey, we for Houston, we have a problem. You know, mm-hmm. we have a problem because I can't pull. I can't use a 3D printer to make a console. You know what I mean? And so it's all about, well, there's a big problem. And how are we going to solve the problem? And so that turns into a we because it impacts a lot of folks. The young folks I've seen, younger than me folks that I've seen on these jobs that I'm on are capable. They're not there by accident. There's not a lot of, you know, here, uh, I'm the production manager and or I'm the tour manager and I'm throwing my kid on a console for a big star touring. That's generally not happening. So they might be on the cruise somewhere else where we're teaching up a young guy to, to become one of us but not in these capacities where the technology is key. Now, when I think on backline terms where, you know, Pro Tools might be running, uh, a pretty impressive Bradshaw system, you know, pedal system could be running, uh, uh, lots of MIDI, you know, maybe going to, you know, multiple places, like from the stage to audio, to lighting, to uh, video, to other, you know, other departments. Um, I kind of like having a younger person who's been immersed in the technology almost lifelong, right? So I know what Pong is, they don't know what Pong is, but I don't know what what a PlayStation 5 is capable of either. So I wanna embrace the knowledge that's intuitive almost. There's digital knowledge that's intuitive now to younger folks, that's not so intuitive to me. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know if you can tell by this part in the podcast, I'm a very inclusive person. <laughs> and so like, I don't hire somebody Unless I think you're going to be an asset at a key point and I just like you. And so I think that that decision of what's going to happen with somebody who does or doesn't know something is done at casting, not on the gig. And so I encourage young people to be upfront and open about what they do and what they don't know. And if I didn't vet them in the capacity of uh, authority, then part of the onus is on me. I'm, you know, and but but by and large, we're in a technological age. And if I'm resistant to it, that's my resistance. That's, you know, and and so I think it's much harder on older folks to learn new stuff than it is on younger folks to learn old stuff. I I would think the advantages to the youth. I I definitely believe that. And I also believe it's incumbent on me to press myself to learn. So and it also helps keep me young. So, you know, I hope that answered that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I can think of some of the um, sound guys that we were with early on that uh, the transition was, 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 was traumatic initially to, to go to digital and to, and have that whole sort of comfort zone gone. And, and it took a while, but I mean, I, I would say that I can think of 
of one person right now they are totally over it they're totally over it and it's fine it's just a, it was a matter of them getting their learning up to a certain level so that they could be confident in what they were doing right um did you have you ever read that book by david byrne that came out a couple of years ago um i'm trying to remember the name of it i i think i might have it on my bookshelf here but uh he he in this book said music style kind of equals the room and he was and basically what he was saying was you know when 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 an orchestra plays it plays in a relatively large room a, a string quartet might be in a in in someone's smaller smaller work, workspace an arena is one thing uh, a stadium is another um he actually brought up this point in a TED talk as well uh, about how architecture has helped music evolve, where, you know, um, you know, anthems work really well in a stadium or an arena, whereas uh, if you try to do that in a coffee house, it kind of doesn't it doesn't sort of read right. Um, but I mean, the theory that he had about this, about about you know, the size of the room and the size of the kind of audience that you have is going to affect the music that you produce. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Mm. You are. And is that reference as a compositional reference? Do you, is that what it is? Is like we're talking that if I'm if I'm writing, knowing I'm going to be an arena performer, I'm writing a certain way. And if I'm a coffee house performer, I'm writing another way. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, so to me, I'm also asking you, how are you asking me this as a musician or as a tech? You know, well, I mean, listen, we've had experiences, you know, I mean, uh, you and I have worked in some really small places and we've played with a lot of people. Uh, Central Park in 91 is a really good example. I mean, that was supposedly three quarters of a million people there that day. Yes. Um, and. Um, I think some of some of that uh, the artist's more intimate stuff would, you know, I mean, his more intimate stuff may not read going across, let's say, you know, if you're trying to do Magritte, you know, to a crowd of three quarters of a million people. It's, yes. So anyways, uh, I, I just found I found I mean, if you get a chance, you should check that video out. Yeah, um, I will. And I'm a fan. So like I'm a Talking Heads burn solo fan. So I am curious. I don't have the book. I love the idea of making my brain think about this to like forcing myself to contemplate it in the context of my nuts and bolts life, my perception as a musician, my perception. And I've done a little bit of composition and my perception in how does a ballad play when there's, you know, 20,000 people, you know what I mean? Like and right. 40 or 60 or, you know, enormous. And, um, uh, and I've also done, uh, some sound design at the level where I'm working with a comedian with a single microphone. And, and, uh, one of the reasons I was called is because I had experience in cabaret and they wanted to have somebody who understood the intimacy and, and that, that it's more theatrical. Like you want to experience the emotion of feeling the performer. I, and I'm a, this is how I like to approach mixing. I want I want the audience to experience the music or the musician or the performer as if there was no audio gear present. And I love that we have so much versatility and tools, inordinate, amazing tools. But the 
almost the idea of the tool is to disappear the tool so that it's between the performer and the person so that, and to me, that makes a more emotive experience, right? And I learned that by working in theater and this. So th- this this moment that you're talking about, uh, uh, and I think about it in c- comedy where he was telling a heartfelt story about a personal incident and he would tell a joke, like a self-effacing joke, and there would be in a laugh. And inside the laugh, he would say another line. And that secondary line, we had to find the balance point where people could be laughing and people who were still listening could hear the second joke over the laughter. So this this balance of how do you do what you do to execute what's being desired to execute? Uh, mm-hmm. To me, I love working hard to making it a success of presentation. So to to make a ballad work in a large audience or to make um, uh, a Marshall full stack in the studio work when it's 20 people in a Starbucks, you know what I mean? Like the challenge of of rearranging to make the song, the song, the song, the piece work to mm-hmm. me that man, I, I love that challenge. So there's this aspect of of me that loves a challenge to like, you know, we're going to do something unusual. Let's go. Put, put me in. What do you want me to do? I can forecast all the problems. But beyond the forecasting of the problems, I want to be a part of the, the solution because it's so desirable to do something like that. So mm-hmm. uh, I and then when I think about who does stadiums and who does arenas and who does you know large theaters and who does small theaters and who does clubs. And um, I toured with a jazz singer and it was a four piece band. It was eight channels. And a lot of times we were in jazz clubs and performing art centers. But we went to Brazil and she was big in Brazil. And I was suddenly I was in a club one night and it was 10,000 people outdoor the next day on the beach in Brazil. But I still wanted to keep the intimacy of I could hear the cymbals in the piano mics and I had to EQ with that in mind. I wanted to keep the intimacy of a beautiful ballad, even though there was 10,000 people and it was beach balls. And so it was a challenge, but I just pursued the challenge, you know. And so anyway, that 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 comes to mind. And and there's obstacles. I mean, we have obstacles sometimes that we have to engage the musicians. One of the questions a few questions back reminded me I was mixing the Afro Latin Jazz Orchestra from Jazz at Lincoln Center. It was Arturo O'Farrell, who's who's badass genius, this guy. Right. And he wrote a piece. And it was a big band, but it was it had congas and timbales along with the drum kit and the rhythm section, no guitar. And I was in um, Davies Hall in San Francisco, and and these guys all played as if they were the lead of the band. <laughs> so it was like this illusion of a stagecoach, you know, that you couldn't reel in the horses. But I could hear when I was soloing the piano player left hand, the Barry sax. And the bass trombone of four, only one of four trombones had a part that was different from the other parts. And and it was my first gig with them. And I could hear this. And I was like, oh, crap. And so he stopped and he goes, well, how's it going out there? And I go, uh, it, it's OK. I said, there's this one part that you're playing left hand and I can hear the Barry and the bass trombone are doing this. But it's getting buried just by the ambient noise. And he, he the guys were talking. He turned to the band. He goes, everybody, shut up. And he turned. <laughs> He turned back to me. He goes, you heard that? He goes, nobody hears that part. He said, <laughs> he turns back to the band. He goes, we got to hear this part. He needs to hear this part. Let's play the song again. And I felt scared, like I had betrayed the band's trust. And at the same time, 
I had done the job that was engaged to, to make sure what was being presented was being presented. And so it really engaged his trust in me. And, and still the challenge was, uh, uh, you know, there's, they're playing loud. You know, the, you know, there was no way to get the piano mics over this band and Count Basie. You can get the piano over the band because Count looks around and goes, shush. And the band comes down and you hear tweet, like two little piano keys up high. So so I had that reference. But, you know, the, and the, in, the, in an opera house like Davies Hall is like an opera house. It's not meant for a PA. It was a ground stack PA. And so basically I just started what the practice became with that band was all the mics were way down except for the piano. And when somebody soloed, I'd bring it up. Right. It was the opposite. Or if somebody was using mutes, I'd bring it up. But otherwise, let the band do the band. But we got in a bigger place. I did have to mix it a little more actively. But um, it's 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 a challenge. And this band came back to Lincoln Center, and and uh, and you know jazz at Lincoln Center. This is Winton's house, you know. And if you if you're messing with Winton, you're not thinking big right and 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 i've had a few interactions with him i'm delighted when i talk to him this guy really knows his stuff and so we were doing a gig in pennsylvania and then we had a kid show in that rolls hall at jazz at lincoln center and they have all this they had lots of uh um mics really good condenser mics and all these great mics and i was advancing with the house production manager and the house uh, head of sound. And they, uh, we were coming in for a 10 o'clock show. They said that we couldn't come in earlier than eight o'clock to set up and, to, and I said, listen, we're gonna use all dynamic mics. I don't care how good the mics are that you have. I need to keep this simple and we can't have mistakes. And I said, if I don't get a sound check, I just wanna be super careful. And the console they had, I didn't have a save file for. So I really had to do this on the fly. Winton came in and saw all the dynamic mics. And after the show, he said, um, I want to see whoever made that decision. I want to talk to them. And I was like, this is my last day mixing this band. Right. And so he met. I got pulled in. The, the thing went great. It, it was a good call for me because it was a safe call. Right. Um, and I. He pulled me aside. He said, why'd you do this? And I said, uh, I, I did it for this reason, this reason, this one. I just said, and he goes, he goes, everybody tries to use all the best stuff all the time instead of making a good decision. He goes, I really appreciate you doing that because you know, I want this place to sound good and I don't want there to be problems. And I said, well, listen, you know, I, I was really holding on for dear life there. You know, I could. And he was like, he was appreciative of it. You know, it was it was a decision that supported what he was trying to do and not, you know, and I'm sure there's engineers out here. It's like, are you crazy? Use the best stuff and do your job. And it was like, it, you know, it was a lot of channels to reel in really quick on a console. I had no save file for which talks about the difference between digital and analog. I knew what to do. EQ wise. I had an EQ quick on the piano and on the horns and all of that. And and I wasn't tuning the system because there was no time for that. So it was making choices given a circumstance. And so yeah, yeah. I, I did the best and, and I was, you know, I was ready to be fired and I wasn't fired. <laughs> so honesty. There's a question. Um, do you think I mean, and this this goes back, we're kind of uh, doing a digital analog kind of thing. Do you think that 
are the MP3 listeners of today unable to know what a good sounding show is because they've never they've never heard music without distortion and you know I mean I mean we've gotten to a point where, where what people are listening to uh, let's say like you're listening to a streaming service or something you are just missing the boat you know I mean I still have a couple of heavy vinyl friends who, uh, you know, you'll, they'll try to get you in front of their nice tube amps and their beautiful uh, overpriced speakers and uh, and the cables that can only work, be worked in one direction and that kind of thing. Um, but do you, I mean, do you think that uh, the, uh, the younger part of the generation just doesn't have a, a real clue as to, as to what sounds we actually got to hear when we were growing up? Oof. Um. I got this lesson painfully. Um, ask me the question again real quick, because I want to make sure I answer the question, and then I'll give you the what I okay. happened to me. Are the MP3 listeners unable to know a good-sounding show? Are they just... Yeah. Okay, so uh, if they're only listening to an MP3 and they go to a show, or listening to a live show as an MP3? No, I'm listening to a show after only having heard the MP3s oh. and all of a sudden coming into a realm where you've got uh, like beautiful mics and, and really, really high, high level, high dynamic kind of uh, sound yeah. being enforced. Well, this there's this is a double question. If they do not have hearing damage as a result of listening to MP3s, which is potentially there. It's like the scene in The Wizard of Oz where you go from black and white to color. If you're listening to MP3s modestly volumed and you go and see a live show that's well mixed, you're going to have an emotive experience because you're going to you're having an emotive experience just by being with people and listening to the music live. But the the dynamic range of of live really exceeds that. And to the other aspect of this to um, MP3s. ooh. Um, so in 90, 1994, I, or five, I was given the task of upgrading Paul Simon's office stereo and, and he had a five figure stereo in there and we wanted to get a newer, uh, CD player that was a higher fidelity and, uh, just change out the cartridge on the turntable because his producer had picked up this turntable. The turntable was fine. We just upgraded the cartridge and needle. Um, so the first thing we put on there was uh, the LP of Graceland and the CD of Graceland. And the first song is Boy in the Bubble, right? And we listened to the CD and, um, you know, the accordion, bop, 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 and then those drum drops, boom, boom. And, and it was like the CD player sounded great because the system was great. It was a tube Macintosh amp and then other great integrated parts, killer speakers. We put on the record and we heard the same 16 or 32 bars. The accordion sounded good. And then when we heard the drums, the transient and the impact of a, of a drum hit that was recorded on tape and transferred to vinyl, it sounded great. And at that moment, it was just like, uh, I had felt my whole industry had sold us to the devil. Like, I just felt like, oh my God, what a betrayal, what an, a travesty. And just, I, I was so dejected and down 
<laughs> just down. And then I was just like, how many records did I get rid of and buy CDs? And I was just like, oh, I was hating myself. But but and the difference between vinyl and CD and then the difference between CD to MP3. So um, talking with Roy Halley about this at times where he listened to a lot of symphonic stuff and, you know, just recorded with the Decatree or stereo mics. So uh, in an empty house, when you hear and I, this parlays to pop music as well. To the thought of um, uh, the tale of a sonic reverb of just the room of the Vienna Symphony or Carnegie Hall and a note ends and it just ca- and you hear the mics capturing the tail of that note as it ends and goes off. Oh, man. And the difference of that on final CD or MP3. Whoa. If you listen to the same piece in those three formats. This is not going to take a lot of work, even for a novice listener, to decipher the difference. And so, um, yeah, I, I'm any iPod music or iMusic or Apple music that's in my phone is in Wave. It's not an MP3, and I I know the reason why MP3. It's, it's you can carry more songs, you know, and and so so be it. I make the choice, you know, and so I I'm I'm not a big fan of it, and when I hear it. It disappoints me because somebody worked their ass off to make this sound good. And we're listening to it in what was the equivalent of a 50s transistor radio versus a real stereo. I've got a, a quick change. You get ready to pivot here. I'm always um, These are great questions. You, you did a nice job on these questions. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Hopefully I won't use them on everybody that I get to come and talk to me. It'll be the same answer. It's going to be, it's going to be like the, uh, the end of uh, um, the actor's studio show. Yeah, right. What you, yeah. What's your favorite curse word? Exactly. Uh, now, um, pr- this is actually uh, along the lines. You, you were, uh, I mean, when we worked together, uh, we've worked together as uh, being on the same crew doing backline, but I've also been out with you when you were doing production and, uh, and just basically what I'm looking at is here is uh, being the boss. Do you trust your departments or does it turn into Fantasia like right away? You know, with the, the you know, the uh, the mops and buckets, you know, the whole the Mickey Mouse thing. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yes. I mean, well, I was I was lucky in, in the in the case of uh, most of the folks were hired. And I knew already. Right. So it was it was just like uh, uh, basically like a a minor upgrade in a way Um, that was with us. And so I I found it it's difficult to tell people that, you know, trust and love to go from being a a private with the privates to being a sergeant above the privates. It's it it was harder for me to tell you or mutual friends what to do than it was to tell a perfect stranger, you know, get your shit together, put that in the case, let's go. You know what I mean? Like be direct and blunt and, and maybe even impatient. Um, uh, in my capacity now, no, if, I, if I'm asked to be in charge, I, I still like to hire people I like. I still like to hire people who are competent and maybe even exceed my own competence. So this is something I learned from jazz, a jazz, an old jazz musician who we lost to the COVID in his 90s. And it, uh, should I quote him? Should I say his name? OK, it's jazz guitarist Bucky Pizzarelli and and uh, just remarkable guitar player. And and 
we were just having a conversation, you know, post soundcheck pre-show and, and we were talking about somebody was subbing and he goes, I always sent a sub in who I thought was better than me. And I said, you were never worried about your, getting your job stolen? He goes, no. He said, I thought I actually was doing myself and the artist a favor because they hired me not just because I was great. They hired me because they liked me. So they got somebody better than me. So then they had that sense of um, that I was looking after them when I wasn't there. And and it and it created a, oh, yeah, he's good enough or he's really good. But I miss the other guy. And so having faith that that um, that that just struck me like that, having faith that, you know, hire the right guy and or send a good send somebody better than you to cover for you. Yeah, you might lose the jobs. That was going to happen anyway. You know, I have a faith that that was going to happen anyway. But there's a certain um, mentality that comes with that, like trust who you hire and hire people, you know, better than you or or that know their stuff better than you do. Because I I, I want to be able when it all this is my great philosophy when I'm with new people. This is hard enough when everything works exactly as it's supposed to work. So let's not complicate it. And if we're calm enough, when something happens, we're all competent enough to deal with that event. And so uh, I um, I don't like to dominate. I, I think that um, I think it's counter counterintuitive and counterproductive because I I'm somebody who believes you get much more with honey. You know what I mean? I just that's my philosophy. And I've seen other people, you know, crack the whip and it works fine for them. Yeah, well, it's funny. There's it's, there's a tremendous amount of ex-military who get into production, who end up or are used to, you know, handling logistics, uh, moving the troops, feeding them, um, lodging them, and then, you know, using that particular skill set that they learned from the Army or the Marines or wherever. Uh, Yeah, you see a lot of that, you know. I mean, I, I was really surprised how many of the production managers that I've worked for over the years were also ex-military. Can I quote on that? Because I am ex-military. So here's a great gift of the military is that you're taught the chain of command from five minutes in. It's not that it's just a drill sergeant shouting at you. On the walls as part of the indoctrination is who's your squad leader, who's your drill sergeant, who's drill sergeant's leader, Who's his commander? Who's the commander of the base? Who's you learn chain of command? So you have a scope of this is what privates do. This is what corporals do. This is what sergeants do. This is what first sergeants do. This is what an officer does. So now you learn managers. So a lieutenant, a second lieutenant, a captain, you learn the chain of command intuitively. And so you know where you are. I'm a sergeant. I'm a private. I'm a colonel. I'm the general. I'm the tour manager, you know, whatever. So there's a good sense of that. Who does what and who's in charge of telling who what to do? So it's it's somewhat intuitive. Yeah. Finish this sentence. A road crew travels on its blank. (laughs) (laughs) Now you think, you know, Alec Baldwin at this point is laughing, you know, because of uh, taking over the old Jane, Gene Rayburn gig. (sighs) Experience. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. 
That's a good one. That's a good answer. <laughs> We're gonna see if get some guy with a to move the little the move the little box in the background. You yeah, know. It's, it's not, depends on the bus. Depends on the pay. Depends on the band. Depends on the flights. Depends on the venues. Um, purse strings. Sometimes the right thing and the thrifty thing are opposite. Penny wise or pound foolish? Hmm. Uh, yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> Yeah, the answer is the answer is both and. You know, let's go call Young. The answer okay. is both and. Sometimes I I would think my if I'm in a production manager capacity, I am compelled to do this job at the budget that I have previously agreed to, and I have to work my ass off to stay on budget or come under. That was the job that was asked to me. I should be in concert with the the production the uh you know the production accounting, the tour manager, and the artist. Like that's who hired me to do that job. So, so th- those things happen, yes. And then we have to make a decision. But, but um, yeah, I think the budget. People need to respect the budget. And then if they made a bad budget, then that, that warrants a meeting. But make a good budget. Be realistic, and and don't let people cut the budget when you know that this is going to cost four months out from the today. Stand to it and then get it in writing. I said this was going to I said the air freight was going to cost money. I said that this catering thing was going to be, you know, and just, you know, and you don't have to jump up and down and rub it in people's faces. Just get it in writing. Hey, I, I mentioned this and, you know, now it's a problem. So let's see the most important quality in a crew person. Or your favorite curse word. Oh, <laughs> I was just thinking now it's the qualifier for that 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 answer. Um, I'm gonna say uh, teamwork. I, I'm gonna say teamwork because it implies that you stay in your lane. So uh, when I say teamwork, uh, it requires it requires a team, but the left fielder can't be throwing to himself at first base and you know the pitcher can't catch the ball he's thrown you know so um it, it's that it's the cooperative nature of teamwork and and stay in your lane you know stay on your position let's put the magnifying glass down one more time and say what's the most important quality in a backline tech not that they are exempt from right question so from the old theatrical, this falls in in props and property. So what's funny is in the last year, I, I have a, an old sound friend who is the props guy on the Broadway show Chicago, and he's brought me in as a as a sub. So I've been actually doing Broadway theatrical props, and this is a this is new business for an old dog, right? And but I had notes the same way we would say, okay, this guitar has these strings with this tuning. This this goes in this case, and watch the second latch because it's bad. And then when I tune this guitar, this nut does this with the bridge. There was similar things where like these dancers are going to go here and do this and the chairs have to do this. So um, with backline, I think it's um, first thing I I think I'm going to make a list. Can I make a list? Sure. What's the question? Was the question? Don't make a list. Pen pen and paper. (laughs) Pen and paper. Um, First and foremost is establish the relationship with who you're taking care of and, and listen, listen to what is asked of you. To me, it's also understanding the job I've said yes to. Um, so build a relationship by listening, 
and then it and then um then it's introspective like what do i need to do to do this job do i have the tools to do this job and then and then it's um detail and like and notes are good for me you know like i i like notes because um if i get distracted by the events of a day i can go back to the notes and say oh you know um the last thing i usually do is put out a fan for a drummer and i don't see the fan and it's five minutes to sound check if sometimes it's not so intuitive and other times it is. So um, in props, there's a lot of detail and then there's notes during the show. There's notes for setup. There's notes, you know, all these things for uncasing, setting up, you know, pre-check, sound check, uh, uh, show, you know, post sound check, get show prep, preset, show, loaded out, like, and, and having a sense of the flow of the day. So um, relationship, listening and, and detail. And so on, you know, uh, if you were a young person and I was telling you, the other thing would be come to work rested, wear the right gear, have the right tools, you know, and, and so show up responsibly, like be responsible as that person. You're only doing one job, but but do it well. That's right. So accountable, self-accountable is also important. Tell me one thing that most people, including the ones you work with, wouldn't think of you. That that I am or that that there's no way they would think this because it's not true. <laughs> no, that you, that you are. I mean, what do they not, what do they not know about you, which okay. they would find interesting, mm. I guess. Right. Maybe selfish and self-centered, <laughs> you know, I, I, I come up, I, I definitely present in a, what do you need? What can I do for you? But there's aspects uh, of, of selfish and self-centered and, and, you know, manipulating to get what I want to happen or to do the least amount for the most amount getting paid. Um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think, um, maybe my history, you know, of, of, you know, what I did when I was, you know, a, a teenager in early twenties, when I was drinking and drugging like a maniac, I, you know, I've done some questionable things. So that would be shocking given who they see today. I don't know. I, I mean, I started martial arts late in life. I started martial arts at 50. I think some people would be surprised to know that I, I, you know, started that and have kind of, you know, embraced it. I have no desire to fight competitively. I, I just, my martial arts practice is like, I want to be a really good fire extinguisher that never gets used. <laughs> good one. Yeah. What is one thing, an event, a song, a project, a story that is widely known that you were a part of? Paul Simon concert in the park from 91. That's a pretty big one. I drum teched for Soul Asylum in the studio. Michael Beinhorn was producing that record. Um, uh, that was a that was that was a pretty big record. I really enjoyed working with him. That was it was powerful and how he approached it changed my mind about the way drums are recorded and i thought i knew and i was thinking that he was a little bit crazy and then when i saw it and heard it and heard it played back after it was recorded i was like damn that was and he had started on mother's milk with the chili peppers this whole having subwoofers blowing the drums back into the room with the drums on the room mics um so that was those were two big ones the other one that was that's lesser known to the music business, but as a New York Yankees fan, uh, Paul did an event for uh, the Joe DiMaggio 
day that was at Yankee Stadium. And he had never used in-ear monitors, and he had not even used like a headset mic live. And um, we went out to the stadium. He was in the studio with uh, Steve Jamie and uh, Steve Shahan doing You're the One early on. So we were in the studio in the afternoon, and we had to go out to Yankee Stadium in the morning to do these sound checks. The first time he went out, he did a sound check, and he says, I'm just going to stand here and sing. And the delay was 900 milliseconds. It was almost a second from when he spoke to when you heard it out of the speakers. And he goes, well, this isn't going to work. And he was doing Mrs. Robinson. It wasn't just like the Star Spangled Banner, where it just sounds like a really crazy delay. You put in earplugs and sing it. So the next day, we went back with wireless just for the mic and that, and and that didn't work. And then he's like, oh, I'm going to have to do in-ears. And so 19, this was 1998, 99, it was the spring of 99. Holy cow. So, and he was just like, uh, you know, you just do it. Just come out with me. And, and so I had, there's a single channel at Yankee Stadium in the grass. You know, those XLRs that you see in the ground in a little stage, they had one of those. And it was a Mackie mixer, you know, and there was no budget to get our touring engineer, Dave, to come and do this. And all of this was happening precipitously. So I spoke to Dave I, and it was all shore gear and the gear was rated to 300 feet. And I don't know if you know the wall in Yankee Stadium. Paul insisted once he did this, he insisted that he do it in center field, which as a Yankee fan, that's what we want. That's where that's where he played. Dimaggio played center field. So the wall's 405 feet and I was 50 feet behind home plate. <laughs> So we're now at 450 feet. And I'm like, I'm going to be fired. This is going to be a disaster. <laughs> and it worked. And it was amazing. So and and, I, you know, just to be a small little part of this, while I must have ground like the enamel off my teeth doing this, um, that was that was one of those events that that I was re- I was proud to be a part of, you know, like that as a Yankee fan and and Paul doing that and all of that. So that, that was a special one. There's been so many tours, you know, special things that have happened. I mean, Paul and Bob on the same tour. That's pretty impressive. 92 inaugural ball. We, Paul played at the Tennessee ball for Al Gore. That was pretty cool. I did an event with uh, 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 Joe Biden did a speech at something I did at the 92nd Street Y. And <laughs> this is this is a funny one. I'm just going to tell you this and you could could delete this if you want. So I had done an event with Paul, a small event where somebody uh, was doing a fundraiser birthday party. They did a big fundraiser at the Carlisle, the the fancy cabaret here in New York. And uh, uh, Paul did it. And the person who was organizing this fundraiser, their assistant had been uh, Biden's assistant as a senator and then early in his vice presidency. And so you know, she and I were hammering out logistics. And so um, I said, hey, your old boss is coming to the White. I was just doing A2. I was putting mics on and off, off people. When somebody from the White House comes, their whole staff comes, you don't touch it. You're not near it. But I was there off in the distance. And so so she had told me, the, the guy who took her job over, there's a guy there named Jim Corona. He's a friend. <laughs> and I didn't know anything had been so we're all standing there. This is all going down, and then there's a whole moment for all these. It was a United Nations event, and there was this moment where all these people got to get their picture taken and say hello. She put my name in the list, and I didn't know it. 
And so uh, his chief of staff, a big lumberjack size Secret Service guy, come to my boss and say, we need to see Jim Corona right now. Right. And so I'm standing there doing mics. My boss gets on. The, I'm on headset. And he goes, you got to get over here. The secret time is looking for you. What did you do? What did you do? <laughs> and so they come and get me and they're like, you. Yeah. Come with me. And it, nothing was his head. And so boom, I'm off headset. I'm off. And they put me in the line ahead of all of the staff that I worked for at the 92nd Street. Why? I was like, oh, my God, I'm here. I got a headset on. You know, I'm I'm in roadie clothes. I'm in blacks. It's like dignitaries. And and the chief of staff said to me, don't talk to him long. This guy can talk. And I go, oh, I'm a veteran. My dad's a big fan. He goes, don't you dare. Even <laughs> those things to Joe. Yeah. <laughs> I said, OK. So anyway, I that was that was a that's a funny story that that I'm happy about. But uh, I just, you know, I think I think that, you know, I don't know always when something magic is going on that's it's funny so but after after the after the point here's here's the next part of this question is what is your proudest moment professional or personal uh that yankee stadium moment probably the professional one because um i really really didn't know if it was going to be okay and i did my best and i was I was out of my league in a lot of ways there. And so doing my best and being out of my league, that was, you know, maybe it was just, it was a scary moment, but, but because of being like a Yankee fan and I root for the Yankees when they suck, which isn't always the case, but, and, and, and just being there for Paul in that moment, you know, just cause you know, Mrs. Robinson, DiMaggio, Yankee stadium. Yeah, it's a big deal. So that, that was, that's a high point for me. Maybe getting a credit on his records, that's also a high point for me. Um, just helping in, you know, in the session capacity. And then um, proudest personal moment, this is a funny one, probably is uh, my youngest son was a home birth. And um, our midwife, our home birth midwife got stuck in traffic. So it ended up being me as the midwife, you know, and. That was scarier, 10 times more scary than that moment at Yankee Stadium. And I, I was on the, it was a time of cell phones. This was only, you know, 18 years ago. So I, I was on the cell phone with her and my wife was coaching me between contractions because she was, is a midwife, right? And so, you know, put your hand here, don't let go, touch this, feel this, you know, I'll, I'll spare you the details. But, but, what they didn't tell me was that at any point, if I had lost my cool, they would have said, hang up and call 911. They both had deemed that I was capable and competent and that I was going to be as good as any EMT in this moment. And so with that realization of two midwives qualifying me to be capable in that moment spoke much more about the human I had become much more than how good a profession. I was. So that's probably it. You know, staying married 30 years. That's right there. I'll be married 30 years in uh, September. So that's a close number two to that. Yeah, buddy. Because I'm not easy and I've traveled. Right. And mm -hmm. so, um, yeah. Thoughts about road life, travel. What kind of person does it take for that constant movement? Mm. Uh, I think... 
uh, road people are more soldiers than they realize they're soldiers, even if they aren't ex-soldiers. So there, there is a willingness to not have roots, but yet be sturdy. So hopefully, hopefully that, that there's an awareness of that. Um, uh, you have to be somewhat pliable in your personality because of the life on the bus that happens in road life. The, 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 the thought of most people cannot quantify, except for the military, about living together with the people you work with and then even socializing with them on the days off. That, that is military life because you don't always get to go home to your family if you're deployed even if it's not a wartime, if you're in, if you're an American soldier stationed in Germany, you don't get to come home for the weekend. You know, if you're not married, you're there with the fellas. You do the job all day. You know, you, you get to hang out at night and, and you may go do a class or you may do something that's a little more personal. But it, you have to fit in. There's a there's a awareness of fitting in and not pulling on that team too hard for your your own proclivities and personality. So. I think it is a little more soldiery than people tend to think. So having that background made it easier for me to fit in, I think. I, I don't take that for granted that I was able to see that, you know, and um, it's not easy. And so, you know, if I'm hiring somebody, this is funny because this was said to my older son, who was an actor by his teacher, you know, I want to cast you as the lead in this play, but if I'm not going to be happy about being with you 18 hours a day i'm not casting you and so that is true for us that like if i'm the production manager and i'm putting a team together uh, i'm thinking about i'm going to spend days in a row with this guy you know even if i'm not out on stage with him i'm in the production office um there's an aspect of of chemistry it's very similar to me the way that sports teams like a general manager has to think about what's the chemistry in the locker room? Does it parlay well to the field? Can they interact even if they're different? So uh, finding the commonality and fitting into a mold because each tour has a different vibe too, doesn't it? So, you know, that, that, that's, that's important to me. There's knowing who you are and that you do this job and that it takes a little flexibility, each different organization. Do you have any hobbies on the road? What do you do to express your creativity when you're out there? So I there's there's a few things. Um, one is usually, you know, some form of exercise, uh, you know, whether it's the, the hotel gym or yoga or, you know, maybe I'm just taking myself through, uh, you know, some of the martial arts stuff, you know, just to keep it fresh because there's memorization and there's physical conditioning. Um uh, I tend to try and see friends like in the places we're traveling. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing is, uh, <laughs> this is going to sound, um, hypocritical to what I just said about, um, you know, we have to live together and work together and socialize together. I tend to stay away from the people I'm working with during those times, just so that my tolerance for their differences of me and my differences of them gets to get a rest. And so I tend to not do a ton of socializing with those I'm traveling with. I will do it like, hey, let's plan a meal a couple of shows or a couple of days off down the road. So, um, you know, there are other things. But, you know, I, uh, I think that's it. I mean, it's it seems like it's like three on one off three on. You know, there's laundry to do. 
you know, and maybe just a walk, you know, just go for a walk or maybe, you know, if I am sightseeing, I probably will do that with somebody I'm touring with. And inside of that, I try not to socialize with the same people all the time. So if I'm really like if you and I were on tour, we would do some palling around. But we wouldn't always do it because we'd also get tired of each other, too, and respect that. Like, OK, let's take a break. You go hang with him or you stay in your room and I'll go hang with them. And like mixing it up is also important because it also is a uh, what do they call that in corporate life? Team building. <laughs> so like I went golfing with one of the guys on the last tour and it really helped build the relationship because it had not. You know, we talked a little bit about touring, but then we were talking about golf and places we played golf. So. Yeah, I, I think that if anybody used the term synergy on the bus, they'd end up getting thrown out the window. <laughs> I have to but, keep uh, my head down because I'm not a you know a, a, a booze and drugs guy anymore. So like you know, I tend to like have a snack, hang a little bit socially, you know, wind my clock down and climb in my bunk. Even if I spend time reading and listening to music or watch a movie or text people, um, I tend to say, you know, goodnight fellas and, and jump in the bunk and, and, you know, break away from that stuff. So you may have just heard one of my cats meowing. Uh, I want to be, I want a no. question. <laughs> he's giving, he's giving me his answer. <laughs> and the whole concept of road wives, you know, the theory I'm going to give, there's a lot of guys, you know, you end up getting people that you, you know, like you said, you get to hang out with them. But there's there's a very much a couple um, dynamic that ends up happening with guys and and gals on the road that are, you know, where it's it's just like you need someone that you can count on, that you can trust, that you can talk to and uh, and do things with. Hey. So, I mean, you know, so that's a theory. I just, you know, is it a survival skill? Is it a need for connection to prevent other options of, you know, right. you know, being out there? Um, are a lot of people that do this are really sort of disconnected? Are they loners or wanderers or seamen, nomads, pirates, circus geeks? You um, know, is it, a, is, it, is it a type of person or is it a choice? Right. I mean, I guess it's a... Uh, in the terms of, of road wife, um, it's weird because I don't, I'm thinking about the long pole tours. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't have a road wife. I don't subscribe to it in a way. No, no, no. I mean, but, I mean, but that's it. I mean, yeah. you, you actually have developed some, some other skills. <laughs> Voice. Is this, I, I guess it's been, um, nature versus nurture or one of those kind of questions. I mean, I think, I think that people do that. I mean, I, I actually, there, you know, there's a, um, you got me right in the 12 and 12 and fourth step sex security society. And mm-hmm. it, and it kind of grounded me when you right. just said that. So, okay. Um, okay. So go ahead, man. Just, All right. Uh, answer um, the question. God damn it. I asked you a question. (laughs) You can't handle the truth. I can't handle it. I can't answer the truth. So, so, um, I, it's fascinating because I, I feel like I've been very close and I am close with folks that I've traveled with, like Mm -hmm. heart open. They know my wife's name. They know my wife's history. They know about my folks. They know about my kids. They know about my past. 
they know about other jobs I've had. They know about my difficulties and my failures along with my successes. So, so the, the, there's a lot of open, I have a lot of people who know about me and my open, how I can be radically open. That does not mean that I go around and tell everybody everything. And also I take very serious that if somebody shares something, if you shared something with me, I don't tell others, even if I know we're friends in common. And so there's an aspect of the lockbox that I take very serious. And so um, I think it's a it's a me decision about what I reveal and what I don't reveal. And so um, do do I have I, I feel I feel awkward in saying I don't really think I've ever had a road wife on even on long tours. I've had like tight groups, um, which you have been a part of a few times, which you know, forever grateful for. So, so the, the nature of what the whole, uh, a traveling society that has the sense of itself as an outcast society. I think you were touching on that, like with the, the carnies and the, the sailors and pirates and that, that our society tends to not understand us, even though we're a multi-billion dollar industry, you know, we're caddies with tattoos, you know, like that, that, and and what was the other job? Sherpers, Sherpers, who are super smart and technically savvy, but still, you know, just wearing simple black clothes, as it were. And some and and uh, having an acute understanding of arts and arts entertainment, and and in our case, music business. So, um, the, going back to this this wingman kind of uh, mentality, there's there are. Uh, I have a lot of associations of tight friendships that tr- because of the digital age, because of texting, emailing, cell phones, international calling, I stay connected with a few different social circles in my life at home. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my downtime, I reconnect to those people. What's funny is I could be traveling. I'm reaching out to you and you're also traveling. Mm-hmm. So so I don't know if pirates were able to correspond with other pirates, which was a fascinating thought as you presented that. I was just like, what a fascinating thing. Dear Peg Leg John. <laughs> and then, like, the thought of we ravaged three English ships and sunk two and I put the, the coins on a beach in the Caribbean. It was such a delight. So good to hear from you. You know, like that kind of the nature of that is it's like wow, I wonder if that actually happened. And I doubt it actually happened. But but this, this closed circle and this secret society, secretish society that we are a part of. And, and in my case, I, I'm grateful to be a part of. And and, and it, I must have demonstrated capability or capacity to exercise this or I would have never been hired for a second job. So so I must have had an affinity for it and an ability to do it that was seen in others. So it's an acceptance thing. So then how do I exercise this on the road? Well, the, the nature of the shows that I've done is a lot of three on, one off, two on, one off. There's, there's never more than two days off. So, um, you know, and so I don't and because of the length of days that we spend together. Right. And in my case, if I'm touring 90 percent of the time, I'm backline. Maybe 80%. I did a lot of sound stuff and a little bit of road manage stuff and that kind of thing. But so um, I need downtime from the people I work with just because of the length of day and just the energy 
of give and take, give and take of the energy. So, so I will tend to like recuperate. It seems like isolation, but I'll recuperate. And so I, I eat well when I'm on the road. So I don't feel compelled to say, I need to go have a really good meal when what has been served is suitable to me because a lot of times I'm having salad with grilled chicken on top. I try to eat pretty healthy, right? So like catering meets my needs more than often. Um, so I'm not dying if I'm in New Orleans to go to a restaurant. I know where I'm going in New Orleans, you know, for food or, or in New York or in Chicago or in LA or in San Francisco, you know, like, or, or overseas, you know, like this, this little place, this ramen place in, in Japan, you know, in Tokyo. So, so, um, I don't have that. Other guys do. And on occasion, I'll be like, you know what? I'd like to go along. Can I please come? And I'll jump in. And and that's one of those things where I'll, I'll do associations where like, oh, I'm going out with, you know, a couple of guys from sound or I'm going with a couple of guys from lighting or the carps or the other backline guys or I'll meet the band I, because of the nature of my relationship, especially in the Paul Simon band, uh, the length of time and and closeness of the relationships. A lot of times there'll be in pre-rehearsals where it's just me and the band and Paul's uh, music cottage. So I built a lot of direct relationships with the musicians where on the days off, I'll meet the musicians and not hang with the crew guys. And so some people think that's taboo. That's a no, no. Others are like, Oh, look, you're going with them. And it's just like, you know, sometimes it's like, we're just going out for a salad and shoot the shit because we got to know each other's families. Right. You know, how's your wife? How's your wife? Some of them know my wife. So, you know, I'll be sitting and talking that kind of stuff or, what are you doing next? What are you doing next? And just there's an affinity. And so because I think because of my musical background, I have a lot of uh, resonance with the musicians and they with me. You know, they just they see a good guy in me and they like knowing me and they just let's go hang. You know, so there's that. Um, and then activity stuff, like if there's something to do, you know, I might organize a trip to the ballpark or I might organize you know, if there's six of us that like to golf or eight of us like to golf, I'll organize it or say, oh, you guys already have it organized. Can I come if I'm not screwing it up? And so, you know, I'll go do golf. You know what I mean? I'm a terrible golfer, but I love to be bad at it. It's fine. And um, and I've I've brought my gi. I brought my karate gi and I've practiced karate in other places of the world, you know, I had it in a work box and I'd pull it out, stick it in the bus, do it, wash it, put it back in the work box. So it wasn't in my luggage. And so that's been a great gift because those I've met guys from all over the world doing that and stay connected with them on Facebook, which is a good side of Facebook. So, so that's another aspect. I have these other connections that are unusual connections. And so my off time is sort of re-identifying who I am to myself. And so I, you know, my life is my wife in a way. And then I obviously I do want to connect to my wife, which is more daily and, and to my kids. When I have a moment, I, I tend to text with the kids and then talk when I have a day off. We did a lot of Skype, walk around the house with the laptop. Um, and then, you know, a lot of friends. I have a lot of friends. And so I like to stay in touch with my friends. And so this a day off can be a full day of hang up, call another person, hang up, call another person, hold it. I got to go to the gym. I go to the gym. I do some, you know, I don't ever do laundry on my days off because it's like there's, there's enough to do that. I'll do that as a production day. I don't care if they fuck up my laundry. I don't bring any clothes on the road that I can not afford to lose. So don't bring your best t-shirt on the road. You could lose it. You know, (laughs) Uh, does that feel like a complete answer for the road wife thing from me? Well, I tell you, I think so. (laughs) 
God, this Jim can talk. He won't shut oh up. God, I can't uh, can't even begin to tell you. No, I'm. Thank you. I'm glad that you're my friend. I'm glad that we had the opportunity. We've had the opportunity over the years to travel together, and um, you know. It's it's funny because one of the other things that I still feel very str- um, strongly about and connected with you about is uh, um, in the business, which was uh, mm. it was so far ahead of its time. Nobody's even seen it. You know? <laughs> off planet. It was oh, totally. Planet. Yeah. It's, it's like the Rick and Morty of, uh, of uh, the early 20th century. Uh, but, are you going to leave this in in the business part? I basically I'm just yeah I'm saying I mean because I mean uh, part of the part of the thing that 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 uh, reason why I'm undertaking this this uh, this project is because of the fact that we've we've lost people like Tommy and um, I want to get I want to get some of these people on record you know and you you were definitely one of them you know and uh, it's something that I think that. I, the, I think there's an appreciation for it, not, and I think it's not just an inside baseball thing. I don't think it's just for road people or for people who are looking to touch the stars in some kind of way. You know, this is about human beings. This is about, you know, the, the path that we we get to go and travel on together, you know. And uh, at this point, I think the last question I'm going to uh, hit you with is uh, is one that's not on the list. It's the biggest question we all have right now, which mm. is, what the hell happened? Where did our job go? I mean, we are this uh, this uh, pandemic has given us an opportunity to be uh, at home a lot more than we usually are. And uh, and that's not always the easiest thing for everybody. You know, Um, we we've always sort of I mean, this is the first summer in 34 years that I've been home. That just blows my mind, you know, Uh, and it looks like people are going to try some innovative ideas, try a couple of different things and uh, and see if they can get it. But I mean, it doesn't change the nature of what we do. It doesn't change the nature of what a crowd, how you can have a crowd of 55,000 people sing a song along with you or go completely silent when, you know, you go to a, to a ballad and play it on the piano or something. I mean, no, those are very remarkable experiences and uh, I'm hoping they haven't gone away forever. I really, really hope that uh, we as uh, as touring professionals um, are going to get an opportunity to do what we do best again soon. You want me to comment? Did yeah, you- just comment. Just comment. I, yeah, there's no there's no real question here. I mean, it's just right. kind of a an observance of, of of what we're dealing with right now. Why do I have time to do a, a podcast now? <laughs> <laughs> OK, so. Uh, where are we? We're in mid June, 2020, right? Yeah. Um, this is, you know, even referencing 1918 seems inappropriate, you know, for the last big pandemic. So, um, and it's just nobody alive really that could, that has the microphone to talk to us about what that was like. I, I just, um, I spoke to a person, Oh, less than a week ago about there was somebody posted pictures of a White Sox game in 1918 with the audience in masks. 
the people attending the baseball game. So I think that that's one thing we'll be looking at. And so because of the force uh, of my understanding of the just being a human, that, that, you know, we're given this drive to procreate, this drive for shelter and food, this drive to be social. If we weren't driven to be social, there would be 8 billion lighthouse operators and no ships. We'd all be, we would isolate and the species would die. So um, there's a reason we're social. And so, man, does a rock concert really feed that thing that's been given to us about how we like to be together and gather that the, the good, good, goodness part of that, how joyous or, or raucous or irreverent or reverent the, the, the beauty of it. Like you said, I mean, you and I work for Paul Simon being in an being on stage just as a nitwit tuning guitars or drums and hearing an audience and him and the band going through, you know, the boxer and singing Lila La Lie or Sound of Silence, like these moments where it's it's not even about the music. It's about the experience on the other side of the downstage edge that these people are having way much more fun than anybody on stage. Maybe. I don't know. It's got to feel pretty good to write a song that 50,000 people are singing along to. But the moment becomes community and the blur of who's doing what, who wrote the song, who made the PA sound so good, who made all the instruments, all of it disappears. So there's a desire for us to congregate. And that and that's been hampered by this virus. And so this is like some of us are taking this as an opportunity. Others, it's painful. This is painful. This is touching on captivity and trauma and and the great fear. Like so the so the sense of of um, I'm a human with a brain and, and hopefully a soul that that it's just traumatic to the uh, my fight or flight. My limbic system goes nuts that I, I can eat if I have money. If I run out of money, I can't eat. I can't pay for my shelter. So then it starts to mess with me as an animal. And and, uh, uh, you know, so it's 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 a huge unsolvable in a way unless, you know, I really stay in the moment and and. And I think we're all learning in some way, shape or form that the government or the globe is is ill equipped to deal with this. You know, I'm an American. And it certainly seems that, you know, there, the money there was money distributed and there may be more money distributed, but there, it's not an endless supply, you know. And so something has to give. But there's the a nature, big gig in Tulsa tonight. Yeah, I know there's a big gig. Holy cow. And it, it concerns me. And, and yet. You know, um, you know, people are gathering to protest and we haven't seen spikes as necessarily from the protest yet. And so like so the gathering is happening. Right. So, so there's gathering happening and, you know, protests can turn to concerts. You know what I mean? And so so there's a willfulness about us to gather. You know, and so some people are deeming it dangerous. And, you know, I. My wife happens to be a healthcare worker, so I'm trying to keep a healthcare worker in the game. And that the the, the willfulness of gathering, especially gathering without a mask, is is tasking that industry. But so the healthcare workers, you know, this 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 isn't their fault, but they're the ones who have to clean this up. They, you know, and so I want to be compassionate to them the same way, you know, people are are cool with us doing what we got to do. You know, I don't look like a business traveler when I show up on an airplane in shorts and a black t-shirt. 
But the flight crew know that I'm a suitable business traveler because they see us on the planes all the time and they treat us with care and respect. They don't look down at me. And so, uh, you know, I think that the airlines and the hotels and the venues would very much like us to be back working. You know, our industry and our country would like us making money to pay taxes, you know, and then the money we send home to pay on the things at home. All of those people want us working. I think I think entertainment is a desired thing because it does spread money around. Um, it's not mission critical to life, but it does touch on that one aspect of that social gathering, which is a compelling thing in us, you know. And so I, I think it absolutely will come back. And I don't know if it's going to be precisely on January 1st, 2021, you know what I mean, because of the nature, especially in our country of don't tell me what to do. We have that as a fabric, as a country. I don't believe a country, say, for example, like Japan has that same um, don't tell me what to do. And I think that that country has much more of a spirit of what can we do as a community to advance Japan? You know, we're a little more anarchistic and geared towards capitalism. So so I, I just think that it's so uncertain. And, and the other thing is, who the hell gives a shit what a roadie thinks about this? You know what I mean? Like, uh, and so I, I also want to keep perspective on, you know, I, I'd like to know that no more emergency room doctors and nurses are going to lose their life taking care of somebody. I'd really like to see that end. I'd really like to see that they be safe and protected. And even if people get sick, the people taking care of them don't get sick. Like that would be a first things first for me. And, and, and then we can figure it out. And then, you know, um, and then I'd really like to see the industry get back because I know I'm in the sound company that I work for here in New York that they're doing like, uh, instant drive in movie theater. So they, they're, they're putting together an led wall and a PA and an FM transmitter. And they're taking big parking lots in certain municipalities and turning them into concert drive in, like not just a drive in movie, but also put a stage in front of the, the screen and, and do a concert. But it's so limited. You, you can't put 15 or 20,000 and you don't sitting in your car is not the same as being at a concert. You don't get the sound of the cheer. You don't get down to your own voice gathered, you know, and the applause. And so the distancing undoes the magnitude of just being an audience and the power of the, you know, sing along or the cheering or the whistling or the screaming. I love you. You know, all of the things that happen at a concert, all of that anticipation of going through the doors and knowing I'm going to go see an artist I really like to see. I'm going to hear this music with people who are like minded in that they like this music. So there's a lot of things that happen. I don't know if that's anthropology, the human experience, right? Like the whole there's there's a whole human experience that happens that has nothing to do with music and technology. That's just humans gathering. And so. I hope that for our species, because it certainly seems like people are getting really stir crazy and don't know how to do this. We don't know how to isolate. And so I do know how to stay in a hotel room. So this is funny that we have this skill set that we know how to hide out, even though we're uncomfortable hiding out at home. We know how to just say it's room service. So we're just getting groceries instead of room service, but we're staying in. And, you know, and so. We have a little bit of a skill set on that, but we're so, at least in my case, I, you know, I'm sad when I look, uh, we heard a, a friend of ours talk about the apps that tell us, you know, where's the next city, where's the next show. I, I'm supposed to be at the end of a, of a tour run right now, coming home. And so that income and that experience 
and my uh, building my relationship with this new client didn't happen. And so there's disappointment and loss and fear of permanent loss. I, I don't think it's permanent loss. Meow. I don't think it's permanent loss, but but I don't know. And so, you know, I want to stay on guard, but I don't I don't want to go into batshit crazy fear because I do think streaming is going to help. But it's it's still not the same as being together. That whole aspect of humanity gathering for concerts, you know, uh, you know, if it started with the Romans and and the, the horrible things that happened in the Coliseum, you know, it's unfortunate that that was entertainment. But I think the gathering. It's still an aspect of humanity that's important to humanity, you know, so Agreed. anyway, I, I think I could go on and on and speculate, but I. I'm tired of hearing me talk about it. <laughs> Just like, I don't think I'm an expert. I have intuitive feelings about this. I have thoughts. I also have, you know, insane thoughts that this is all an act of mother nature. And she was just like, you guys aren't getting to fixing me soon enough. So I have to take care of it myself. And this is how I can shut you nitwits down for a couple of months while I heal myself. And so, you know, that's not out of the realm of, of, of crazier things are true, but but I think there's an aspect of that and um, inside of this are even crazier, you know, like, you know, did I disconnect or did you? It just seemed like it, the video went out for a second. Yeah, my video went out, too. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think that's I guess it's a sign from God. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Stop hurting my planet. Oh, you know, and, and like, you know, there's all kinds of little signs of this. Nobody's really watching this, but the um, I saw a picture about three weeks ago that. The first time ever they got a picture of Everest to Kathmandu, a clear shot where you could see one from the other and that never been witnessed. Wow. And so to me, th those are little signs that are like, oh, yeah, you know, so it, it may have a little to do with that. I, you know, I just think it's, you know, it, th there was so many people in, in uh, public health saying it's not if it's when. And so. You know, we're learning. We're learning. We're learning. You know. I love you, Jim. Love you thanks too. Thanks for uh, thanks for spending some time here in the circle. Sorry, these answers were so short. <laughs> I, I I can't believe my hard drive had this much space on it. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's fine. Plenty to work with now. All right. And now, and when I get when it's trimmed down to a 22 minute special, it's going to be something. You know. Yeah. You'll, you'll have something. God, I always feel bad for editors when it's yeah. way longer. No, that's got to go. That's got to go. That's got to go. Uh, that's bullshit. That's got to go.